Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, as you well know, we are in the throes of a season of books on Have You Heard. (laughs) I mean, it's always the season of books. Jennifer, since I haven't been able to access my office, I now have books overflowing in my living room from things that I have read for the show in terms of hosting authors of books or just in preparation for the show. And that doesn't even include all the books that I would have had had you told me the homework that I needed to do to be adequately prepared. In this case, I I did it. I've now got several books that are law-related, including Derek Black's new book, Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. Well, that, of course, is the subject of today's episode. But Jack, first I have to ask you, on top of your pile of books threatening to spill over, are there perhaps some brand new books that you want to tell people about? (laughs) You're so proud of this little red book. Um, Yeah, I I received a shipment of uh, our new book in the mail. I I think I got eight copies. That seems to be a pretty random number there. Uh, So our book is apparently shipping A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School. I'll be really excited to talk about Derek's book on this show because I think it pairs really nicely with ours. If you're a regular listener, then you'll immediately recognize the distinctive voice of Derek Black. We had him on the show a couple of years ago to make the case that there is, in fact, a federal right to education. That was episode number 41, Getting Fundamental. Check it out. And now he's back to talk about his brand new book, Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education, and the Assault on Democracy. It's really good. And one of my favorite things about it is we get to learn about Derek's own story. The book opens with a powerful prologue about how Derek's own school experiences shaped him. Until I started writing that chapter, I didn't realize how many times I had changed schools and how many different homes I had lived in. As a young person, you think of everything as just sort of working out right in the end. It's like I'm here, you know, I've got children I didn't, didn't fall off the deep end. But, you know, looking back, there was a lot of things to sort of overcome. And, you know, I had the love of my parents and grandparents, but that was really, you know, primarily the, the, the most that they could offer me. Public schools made the difference in my life. You know, I, I say that uh, they often wanted me for than, than I wanted for myself. And I don't go into that, but like I just, I didn't try very hard at all in school. Like I tried my best to undermine myself in the way that young people do. For example, there was that time when a student teacher took over his Algebra 2 class for a few weeks, and young Derek saw an opportunity not to dig deeper into polynomials and quadratic equations, but to catch up on his sleep. I slept through four straight weeks of Algebra 2. And when she gave the test at the end of those four weeks, I made a grand spanking zero on that test. Not 
I, I didn't, it didn't, nothing on that exam computed to me. And to be clear, I'm someone who was, had good math scores. And so Ronnie Chris, Mr. Chris, saw the grade and thought, well, geez, something strange is here. And then he said something to me, and I started crying about it. He said, look, Derek, you got one week. Go home, study this stuff, and after school on next Wednesday or whenever it is, you can come in and, and take the exam again. And he did, and I made 100 on it. Literally the difference between a zero and a 100 is someone sort of taking you know, mercy on me and, and wanting me to succeed. I didn't deserve that, I wasn't owed that, right? And, and that's just sort of one of a lot of, a lot of stories that, that children across this country have that are good stories sometimes, and other times they're not, right? I mean, my book on zero tolerance talks about pushing kids out and not giving them that opportunity. And so I clearly grew up in a time and was of a race and place that, 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 that I got at least some benefit of the doubt. We also learn about where Derek grew up and how the intersections of race and place ended up shaping him, even if it would take him a while to figure that out for himself. Clinton High School is the the first traditionally white school high school in the South to graduate an African-American. And um, the school was later bombed, not by people from Clinton, Tennessee, but from folks outside the state. Thurgood Marshall had come to Clinton and had said, immediately after Brown versus Board of Education, let these 12 kids walk a couple hundred yards off the hill to the white school instead of taking an hour-long bus ride to a different county every day. Growing up as a child, I didn't know all the ins and outs of that, but I used to play basketball, rec league basketball, in that one-room African-American school building where all the African-American children had been housed together with one teacher. And so, you know, that story and my experience with race and sort of trying to figure it out as part of the story and then ultimately going to college, the first in my family, and by happenstance ending up in an African-American studies class began to make sense of my life in a way that I hadn't fully made sense of it before and understood not just, you know, education's role in my life, but education's role in this larger democratic project. And so I sort of give that as just sort of the springboard for saying, look, that, that's where I'm coming from, right? And, and finally that, you know, public education is the inheritance that one generation passes to another, particularly for kids who can't hope for um, an inheritance in a traditional sense. And that's certainly what it was for me, and I feel it's my responsibility to, to try to pass that inheritance on to, to younger people uh, when I'm gone. Well, Jack, I'm guessing that anyone who just heard Derek recounting his own story can immediately get a sense of why he's a friend of the show, right? We love him. <laughs> um, but also why his book is so compelling. And one of the things that really stood out to me just now listening to him is how expansive that education is that he got that you know that that the way that he was steeped in race and place as he put it and i wondered as someone who is so often pushing back against what you refer to as a narrowing of the aims of schooling i wonder what you heard yeah i heard derek describing relationships with teachers that went far beyond the acquisition of content knowledge in two subject areas, um, right? He, he had relationships with teachers that were trusting and caring um, and that were based on those teachers knowing him and seeing him in a variety of ways. Um, it actually reminded me a lot of some of the ways that Mike Rose has written about the transformational power of education, right? That education doesn't happen exclusively inside schools. And schooling is not always educational. But uh, when 
true education does happen within a school. It's a powerful thing to witness. That's Mike's phrase. Um, and the way that it happens is when professional educators have the training and the capacity and the autonomy to engage with young people uh, in not only the instructional core, as what Harvard scholar Dick Elmore would call it, um, but also all of the other aspects of uh, young people's interests, talents, abilities, uh, which again is a, a way that Mike has talked about the importance of education, right? That it not only exposes you to the core uh, of the academic experience, but it also helps you discover your interests, your abilities. It, it broadens the world for you. It's a broadening experience, and clearly that was Derek's experience. Back to Derek and his new book. Despite the title, Schoolhouse Burning, and the dramatic cover art of charred pencils arranged in the shape of a flag, this is a deeply optimistic book. And that's because as Derek immersed himself in a sort of people's history of the post-Civil War years, he kept finding a commitment to public education that just astonished him. In the last time we were together on the podcast, I was talking all about this discussion, primarily in Congress and their conversation with the states. That really kind of sounds like old white men telling the South what to do. And so there's this version of my research that could have looked like that a couple of years ago. But as I began to dig into the stories of real people, you know, what I realized was, no, like Congress is having this conversation because of what people at the grassroots level are saying. And when I say people, we're not even talking about freedmen. I'm talking about people people who were enslaved and trying to get education before the Civil War was, was even over. It was shocking to me to learn that the first schools for African Americans were not built after the Civil War. They were built in the middle of the Civil War. And in, in Beaufort, South Carolina, or St. Helena Island is, is the best example of that. Northern missionaries sent prefabricated walls during the Civil War down to St. Helena's Island so that they could build a school for African Americans. And Derek found a similar story playing out in state after state after the Civil War, a powerful and largely forgotten push from the grassroots, black and white, for public education. Down here in, in Charleston, South Carolina, as soon as the war is over, the Colored Citizens Convention comes together and says, we want right, the pillars of society to be as secure in South Carolina as they are in New Hampshire. And those pillars are the pulpit and public education, right? That they understood that they wanted to have their religion and they wanted to have public education. And that would, would assure their future or at least give them a reasonable chance at a future. And so you have all this background of, of sort of agitation, organization, and advocacy, not just in South Carolina, but in Arkansas and Louisiana and elsewhere, demanding that the states provide public education. So our state constitutional conventions are really getting hit from two sides. They're getting hit from the from the grassroots side and they're getting hit from, from Congress. And that's, that's a really, and I should say in Congress, I think is coming to realize this issue as much because of the grassroots advocacy as anything. Um, but anyway, it is a very powerful story. You've got a great line almost exactly halfway through the book that I think echoes what you were just saying, Derek. Public education in the South, which was really a black idea, had become too powerful to quash. But I want to approach this from a different angle. 
you make this powerful argument in the book that there has always been a federal right to education and that the radical idea is that public education doesn't have a special place in our democracy and that government has no business providing it. And you give us some exemplary federal involvement through the Northwest ordinances and through Reconstruction, looking at the importance of education for the promotion of democracy and democratic equality in both cases there is top-down elite concern for those who would otherwise not receive an education. If this was left to the whims of the marketplace, there are people who would not get an education. And that was viewed as too risky. They didn't want to take that chance that people out in those uh, Western lands or in states being readmitted after the Civil War would not have an education. So I'd just like to hear you talk about the top-down concern and about what political elites actually wanted in terms of extending education to people. At that moment, at the nation's founding, we are a world run by kings and queens and elites. And America was a radical idea that we would let regular folks, not necessarily women, but maybe regular white men, run the country. And if that was going to happen, like the kings and the queens and the elites, they were worried about that. I mean, Hamilton, everyone, a lot of people reading Hamilton now, you read that now, like Hamilton is afraid of common people. A lot of them, they say, look, if we let the common people take control, they'll just tax us to death and take all of our stuff and we'll be the poor ones on the street. And the only guard against that is to give them an education that allows them to see the common good. And so there is this idea from the get-go that, that our system may implode without public education, or as Madison says, it'll just be a farce and a tragedy. So they very early on, right, you, Thomas Jefferson begins working in his home state. We have Adams working in his home state towards creating those state-level systems of, of education. But then there's like everyone else, particularly the territories. And so the America that we have today is, is much bigger than, than those original colonies. And they said, as to the rest of the territory, there will be a center lot reserved in every single town in the rest of America for uh, a school. Law professors don't spend much time thinking about the Northwest Ordinance and public schools and, and public education historians don't spend a lot of time thinking about constitutional theory. And so I kind of, for the first time, put two things together and realized, wow, the Northwest Ordinance, not only did it mandate public education or a sort of reserving of land for public education, which education historians have been talking about forever, it's actually part of the deal for passing the United States Constitution. You had several colonies asserting competing claims for these Western territories. And you cannot have a United States of America under the U.S. Constitution if Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Connecticut all think that they own Ohio, Illinois, Michigan, on and on and on. There's also this land deal whereby the colonies give up claims to those Western territories, come up with the rules for developing them, and moving them into statehood. So this plan in the Northwest Ordinance is actually a precursor to the constitutional structure that we have today. Day. And the same people who voted on the U.S. Constitution are the same people who voted on the Northwest Ordinance as well. So I argue you can't separate those two things from our constitutional structure. A trademark of Derek's work is that he takes history that we think we know and approaches it with fresh eyes. Take the question of how to pay for public education. What Congress hoped was that land would be enough. But what we found in that first 75 or so years was the land was mismanaged. It really wasn't that valuable because there's always more land out, out there, out west, than 
Land was not creating the resources necessary, but Congress had not paused to find a solution to that. But following the Civil War, at least in the South, the South transitions to saying, number one, voluntary efforts on land is not enough. What we need is, one, a constitutional obligation to provide it, and a tax system to fund it. And so we, clear, we clearly see those two things happening um, in the South. And of course, the North had had its own fits and starts with, with statewide tax systems throughout uh, the mid-1800s as well. But the interesting thing, uh, when we start talking about regular people's commitment to using their own tax dollars to make sure everyone has education, is the poll tax. Poll taxes are bad business through the modern eyes, right? That they were the means by which to exclude African-American voters. But African-American uh, citizens in the South were the very ones insisting on poll tax. And they wanted to do it because every single dollar from the poll tax would go to public education. And they understood, particularly in a, in a you know, war-torn South, there was no money coming from lands and plantations, per se. If we're going to have public education, we have to have taxes. And we think everybody's going to want to vote, so let's tax the vote. Now, they were also egalitarian enough that they said, if you can't afford to pay the poll tax, you can still vote anyway. But the point being that they established, through a relatively what would seem like a radical uh, idea today, a way to fund statewide public education. And then during the redemption period of when the Southern whites took over power after Reconstruction, they began to attack that tax system and start to change it so that the money wouldn't be divided up equally uh, and spent around the state. They wanted to make ways that some communities could raise more funds than others and, uh, and basically let the dirty business happen at the local level rather than the state level to hide it from the eyes of the federal government and, and today to hide it from the Equal Protection Clause, to be quite honest. It struck me as something of a paradox that there could be no federal right to an education, but there could essentially be, I'm obviously oversimplifying things here, but essentially be a right to an education in every one of the states. And that in many of those states, they could recognize, they could read in a federal right to education. There's sort of this, this funny thing going on there, right? Where like, there's a right to an education everywhere in the United States, but there's no right to an education in the United States. All 50 states have this constitutional obligation, and most of them have lands, right, from, from the federal government. They've all been, re, the, the Confederate states were all readmitted pursuant to admissions conditions following the Reconstruction. And I sort of go through all these facts and go, now you tell me, do you think all of these things are just happenstance or, and circumstantial, or do you think there was a design from the get-go to make sure that these states had, had public education? And so I say, look, yeah, they've all got state constitutions because Congress and the nation has been committed towards that agenda from the beginning. The problem is, I think that that sort of commitment got crushed by Jim Crow segregation, right? Here I am sort of telling a story in the book about the freedmen and these Reconstruction conventions, and like most people don't know anything about that. I mean, they know about Jim Crow segregation, hopefully. They know a little bit about Brown versus Board of Education, but they don't realize that Brown versus Board of Education is really the reawakening of an idea that started in 1868. And so I just think all of the blood, sweat, and tears that African Americans and Congress and people like Charles Sumner and, and, and others in our, in our early presence put into public education got quashed by Jim Crow segregation. And now you might say sort of the, the modern far-right privatization agenda that just doesn't want to acknowledge that history of where we came from. So yes, it is a, it, it's only a paradox insofar as you ignore history. If you read the entire history, what you find is that we are 
operating under a false set of pretenses right now. As I mentioned earlier, schoolhouse burning is infused with a spirit of optimism. That's in part because of its author's sensibility. But it also reflects what Derek sees as a profound commitment to public education in our history, even the parts that don't exactly shine. I'm the guy that will swear that the glass is three-quarters full when it's damn near bone dry. So, you know, put that out there to begin with. With that said, right, you know, you look back over this long history and you've seen all of the instances in which public education could have, maybe should have failed, and its ability to make it through. There's no doubt that Mississippi and South Carolina wanted to crush African-American education, didn't want to fund their education, didn't really want to fund the education of poor white folks either, right? But there's a a segregationist, right, who stands up uh, in the Mississippi Convention and says, uh, when people are saying, let's just take education out of the Constitution altogether. And you got to figure that there may very well have been a majority for a moment might have been attracted to that idea. And he said, that's too far. Let's, Let's not do that. It had caught hold, right, that it, it is part of our inner fiber of democracy, even if that democracy is racist. I asked Derek what lessons we should take from this book, and I couldn't help myself. I had to ask him if he's been able to hold on to that sense of optimism, given everything that's going on right now, the pandemic, the budget slashing, all those well-funded claims that we don't actually need public education anymore. Well, you get where I'm going. This isn't just about policy. It isn't just about test scores. It isn't just about what's the convenient school and what's convenient for me. It's really something much bigger than that. And it's always been something bigger than that. I hope that we can see that. And the pandemic certainly puts that at risk because, you know, when the pandemic first hit, I thought, well, this is this this is this magic moment. All of a sudden everyone realized how important public school is and how hard it is to teach kids and shouldn't be blaming the teachers for everything in the world. This is not easy. And I thought, man, this is a magic moment. But crisis most of the time forces us to look at what's immediately in front of our face and forget those larger ideas. And so I do think the immediacy of like, what does my child need today and how can I best get it does put these larger ideas at at serious risk. So, you know, I'm a little bit less optimistic today than I was when I wrote the book. I have to say that. That was Derek Black. He's the Ernest F. Hollings Chair in Constitutional Law at the University of South Carolina Law School, and he's the author of the fantastic new book, Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. I can't recommend it highly enough. If you have time to read only two books on the threat to public education this season, make this one of them. And Jack and I will be right back to tell you how you can get your hands on the other one. So, Jack, enough about Derek's fine book. Now it's time to discuss the other publishing event of the season. Are you talking about the dual release of uh, our book and Barack Obama's book, which I <laughs> assume has been coordinated so people can just pick up both of them at the same time? 
how to choose. <laughs> so Derek's book with his relatively optimistic outlook and what I think of as our more pessimistic outlook really got me thinking. Um, you and I have been doing some press conversations around the book. We talked to Maureen Downey at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and um, she interviewed us separately. And her last question for me was, you know, something like, wow, this was a really pretty depressing book. What can I feel good about? And as I was answering, I thought to myself, I wonder what Jack said. <laughs> I, she didn't ask me that. She she was ready to just uh, step into the darkness with me for a while as we talked through the fact that, you know, this isn't a story about Betsy DeVos, right? That Betsy DeVos is the headline right now, but that this is a much deeper story uh, that's actually far scarier than if it were simply about the current Secretary of Education, who um, not only is limited in terms of the powers that she has because of limit, limited federal authority, uh, but who also may not be in office uh, for much longer. This is a story about what's happening at the state level and about how DeVos has simply acted as the bully-in-chief at the federal level, normalizing a kind of radical policy discourse, but that the real threat will continue unfolding at the state level uh, for years to come. And I actually think that our book is an optimistic book and that the scary part is the part that produces the optimistic part, right? That um, once people realize what's going on, um, they're not going to have it. Uh, I don't see that as a pessimistic outlook. I see that as a, a fairly optimistic outlook. I think you and I are optimists, right? That we're just trying to paint a very bleak picture for people so that they understand what's at stake. I had imagined you sort of standing by in a glass box on the stage and then our our two answers would be compared and of course mine would turn out to be the better one. So do you want to know what I said? <laughs> no, I don't. But you're <laughs> well, going to tell me anyway, so... <laughs> Yes, yes, I do. I can't wait. So my take is actually similar to what you just laid out, Jack, that I've been continuing to report on Arizona, which was the topic of our last episode. And what you see there is that as the as the Republican Party splits and you see this energy, extreme energy on the far right, that the way that they talk about schools is so alien to their own constituents who send their kids to public schools. Like it makes no sense at all to people that, you know, to hear that their teacher is grooming, you know, little Sally for Sharia marriage or, you know, for sex trafficking. Like things are really going off the rails and the, the greater the distance is, between the way that the extreme right characterizes public education and the the experience of the people who have their kids in schools, the as that gulf opens up, I think it opens up uh, a gulf for resistance. And that's a space that I'm hoping that our book will fill. So Jack, this seems like an appropriate place to plug our forthcoming book. And since you are so notoriously averse to doing anything that <laughs> smacks of capitalism on this show as your karmic penance, I'm going to give you that job. Oh Please proceed now. <laughs> Great. Uh, okay, everybody. So we wrote this book. And if you listen to the show, you're probably actually going to love it. Um, 
If you want more information about it, there is a website, wolfattheschoolhousedoor.com. You can also just Google it or Bing it or you know whatever your search engine of choice there is. Um, it's available through all of the usual retailers. I would suggest not being lazy and ordering it on Amazon uh, because you can actually get it uh, for the same price and support your local bookseller. Um, and one of the things that Jennifer and I have talked about, and Jennifer, I'm just going to go for this, so jump in and tell me if you think this is a bad idea, um, is organizing virtual book clubs. And we happen to have a few copies of the book uh, here as advanced copies. We can probably arrange to sign those. So if you go to the website, the Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door website, there's a form there that you can fill out. And if you organize a book club with nine or more friends, um, and if you're one of the first people to do that, we will drop a signed copy of the book into the mail for you and get you started maybe a little bit ahead of other people um, since the book technically hasn't hit bookstores yet, uh, but will be shipping any day. Jack, I just love that idea. And I think that our listeners will too. People seem very excited about the book. And I know that when my copies arrived this week, there was a scene of great celebration at my house. (laughs) In the meantime, if you are interested in throwing a couple of dollars our way each month to support your favorite podcast, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast. You'll see a list of all the cool extras you can get just by supporting us. Things like a custom reading list, you'll get smarter each time you listen to the show. And an area that we call in the weeds where we talk, we go in depth to some related topic. And today we're talking about an idea that Jack had. He, he's been arguing that this is the first election in our lifetime where public education is really on the ballot. We have somebody running for the highest office in the land who doesn't believe in it at all. And like many of Jack's ideas, when I first heard about it, I was meh. But over time, I've, I've thought about it. And you know what? I think he's right. And I would like to discuss it more in the weeds. So if this interests you, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast. Well, before you do that, before uh, you you know begin salivating over premium content that has been kept away from ordinary people, uh, let me say that there are lots of ways to support the show. Uh, so go on, give us a rating wherever you've downloaded the podcast. Make sure that you're a subscriber to it. Um, Go on and let us know via the show's Twitter handle at Have You Heard Pod if you have any ideas for future episodes. And I'm going to add one more to this list, inspired by a friend of the show, Mira Debs, who said that she bought an extra copy of the book so that she could place it in the little free library in front of her home. Adorable. I think, I think the coolest way to support the show is to bulk order copies of this book and send it to friends and enemies. Uh, I just think that that would be, what a delight that would be. You can do it anonymously. (laughs) What a great idea. Well, thank you, Jack, for all of your excellent pitching this episode. That's it, though. I'm, I'm done. I'm done for the season. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. 